Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 217 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas. And I'm excited about today's episode because we have an, an inspiring special guest who I'm going to interview in this conversation. Michael Kragic from Atreyu Running joins the show. We're going to talk about his really fascinating backstory, but also talk about his business, Atreyu Running, which is a running shoe subscription service built around the idea that he wanted to create simple, easy to access, accessibly priced running shoes and bring them to that everyday performance runner. And I am proud to say that even though this is not a sponsored podcast, I wanted to talk to Michael because I believe his story is inspiring and because I like his shoes and I'm running in them. So he's on today. He also has a special connection to the road community, which we'll talk about before we jump in with Michael, a couple of quick notes. First of all, one of my goals for the podcast in 2021 is to simply bring to you more inspiring stories and people from the running community where we can draw lessons for running and for life out of the conversations. And so this episode represents that in many ways. And I've got another fun conversation scheduled for next week that will do the same. And so we'll bring these inspiring stories, but always try to bring those lessons out for you to take to your own life, to your own running. And second of all, I'm also happy to say that thanks to your support, I have signed a one-year deal with my sponsor that started to support me in the latter half of 2020, the business called Care Of, which provides daily vitamin packs so that you can get those daily supplements in a really easy to use format. And so you'll be hearing ads, mid-roll ads during the episodes throughout the year. It won't necessarily be every episode, but I'll be averaging about one a month with that company care of. And I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Really appreciate you supporting them and also them supporting the podcast so that I can do more with this podcast in 2021. My first ad with them will occur in the middle of this episode. So we'll take a break during my conversation with Michael and talk about the company care of and give you an offer if you want to check them out for the first time. But I'll be having ads with them throughout the year. So quick heads up on that. With that as our intro, though, we're going to jump right into this conversation with Michael. Here we go. Welcome, Michael Kragic, to the Running Rogue podcast. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me on today. It's good to have you. As I mentioned in my intro, Michael is the founder of Atreyu Running. They're mixing things up in the running world, but also has an interesting backstory. And I think that has lessons for life and for running. So I wanted to dig into all of it and, of course, get to talking about your business. Well, let's first by, start by just talking about you, Michael. Tell me about you growing up and you know, how did you get involved in sport, first of all? Sure thing. Yeah, so um, the running came a little later, although I did have a, uh, a 10-year running cross country in high school. But uh, mostly growing up in Southwest Louisiana, I was uh, on one of the first hockey teams, actually. Uh, we started with roller hockey, and then we had some semi-pro like ice hockey teams. So we had a little ice hockey league uh, for the youngsters. And I got to play hockey, and I did all the typical Southwest Louisiana baseball, stuff like that through school. But, um, but yeah, running, running came a little later when I was uh, – I got serious about it at 26, and uh, so I'm 33 now. So, you know, 
relatively, I would call myself relatively, you know, not a, uh, like a high school all the way through season runner, but it, it is a, it's the most important part of the physical part of my life. Yeah. And so you grew up in and around Lake Charles, if I'm, yep. if I'm right about that. I've spent a little bit of time in Lake Charles. What was it like growing up there? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was awesome. Um, I was a little bit different, I suppose. Um, more of a creative introspective kind of a guy. I what I, I was in big public schools, but I, I found myself more at home in the smaller, you know, 25 per class kind of student ratio of uh, going to the private schools. But uh, I think it was because I was a little bit more of a creative introspective thinker. And um, so to answer your question, it was awesome growing up there. I found it to be a wildly interesting town. A lot of great talent come there uh, from the you know, the anywhere between academia and athletics. Uh, so although it was a small town, we had a lot of great value that uh, that could be incubated in such that small town. A lot of tight-knit community taught me a lot about family and the great stuff there. I knew everybody in town. So it was, it was fun. Uh, it was fun growing up there. I assume you learned how to survive humidity too, because <laughs> that's a par for the course. It is. It is right off right off the Gulf. Uh, basically, <laughs> the air's so thick you can cut it with a knife. So yeah, the humidity proved to be in the early stages of training. Uh, you know, I started training for a triathlon and uh, running. You know, at that age, uh, twenty six there, and I spent a few years running there, and I. I do think that that humidity, like it's like the difference between Austin and Houston. Houston's super humid, and so is Lake Charles. I I think that's a little bit of a plus. Some people have altitude. We had humidity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So where did you go from there? What what was your college experience like? Sure. So I um I by the time I was in my kind of adolescence, looking into colleges, I was ready to get out. I was ready to kind of see the world and um. I uh, went to school in the summers and uh, so to get out of high school a year early, but I, I applied to UT here in Austin and I got accepted and went to UT for about three semesters. But again, I was creative, introspective, like those small classes, UT proved to be a little bit bigger than I was comfortable with. I think at the time it had like 52,000 students or something and <laughs> It was just a little bit overwhelming, and I, needless to say, the academia part took a, you know, a back seat uh, due to the discomfort and the ways that I was finding solace through that discomfort. I ended up transferring to Boston um, to go finish my undergrad with a music degree at Berklee College of Music in the back bay of Boston, Massachusetts. So I have a music degree from Berklee in Boston, and. Uh, that was that was the school part of, of the thing. So um, music degree and got out of Boston, left Boston, did some traveling around, ended back up in Louisiana after, you know, a couple of years of chasing music commissions and playing with bands and stuff like that. And uh, went back to Lake Charles and uh, kind of kickstarted the post collegiate life where I got into, you know, building my first business, which was an artisan hot dog parlor. And um, it's still there today, but uh, learned a lot from both the music education and the restaurant business. Those two things will teach you a heck of a lot of information. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what did you play? Um, 
I played guitar. So at Berkeley, you have to, you have to pick a kind of a principal instrument. Mine was guitar performance. So, um, but my, my emphasis was on writing, songwriting, commercial writing. So anywhere between understanding the context of a great song, how they're written, uh, the process of writing, how writers take them, um, especially in the commercial standpoint and um, anything from that to jingle writing for um, you know commercials or and with that degree you can kind of be a little bit lateral about it I did some film scoring and some jingle writing I write my own music I recorded my own music so you end up coming out of Berkeley with a jack of all trades but it was guitar with a songwriting emphasis hmm. that's cool yeah it was fun and before we get into the business stuff I do want to talk about mm -hmm. your you mentioned sort of finding outlets in in maybe less positive ways at UT. And so I know you're now sober and have been through that process to get clean. And so tell me about that side of things. What was your experience and how did you come through it? Sure thing. I appreciate you asking. Uh, it's a very big part of my life. Uh, I would call it a little bit of my true north um, is so I mentioned that I went back to Lake Charles after um, to start the restaurant. Actually, the restaurant was more of a symptom of kind of not knowing what I wanted to do um, after this music degree. I wasn't making any money or anything like that. So I would be, quote unquote, a drifter kind of musician. And I moved back home, started the restaurant uh, because I had acquired some skill and how to do that from various means, working in restaurants, stuff like that. So um, a week before I opened that restaurant, I decided that I had, uh, I mean, I, I had a, I went to AA and had a, um, a very big epiphany that using substances and, alcohol and chemicals and drugs like it was it was just not not who I wanted to be anymore um I uh you might you may find that there's a little bit of a cadence of a little bit of difficulty the onboarding talking about it simply because it all kind of started when uh through the 20s uh going through those discomforting situations I actually lost um a family member my dad at 13 so I was I was I'm a big believer in what we practice, we become. So what I was practicing from the time of around 16 or 18, all the way until I got sober at 26, was practicing finding these external solutions to the internal problems. And uh, I use that as a guiding force today, which was I, I, had, um, I developed a drinking problem and, uh, and perifer peripheral substance abuse as well. So it, a week before opening the restaurant, I, I um, decided to fully commit to the sober lifestyle and go through the program. And I found an outpatient group of which I met for three hours a night, three nights a week for about three years. And it not only did it save my life, but it gave me the tools and resources to apply those things and, and everything that I'm doing today. And, um, uh, I haven't looked back ever since. Um, it it was the first thing that taught me how to. The question that that I was asked point blank was, "What kind of man you want to be?" And mm -hmm. and 
if we're open to it and we see opportunity and we really get honest with ourselves, maybe that question becomes, for me, it was very loaded at the time and there was only one thing to do and it was become sober and to start putting one foot in front of the other and building my life back where somebody that I wanted to be proud of. And uh, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. I appreciate that very much. And I know there are those that listen that can relate to that kind of a journey. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some lessons that you bring forward now to life. What are, what are some others of those? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, you'll, you'll kind of see them threaded in the ethos of the company, Atreyu, but, um, but they're more so just things that I believe in. Um, for example, a lesson that I learned was, uh, simple doesn't always mean easy. It's a simple idea to become sober. It's a simple idea to go to that first meeting or to join that outpatient group, but it's definitely not easy. It's it, it the self-esteem, my self-esteem has traditionally been much lower than I've ever wanted it to be. Um, that's been very confusing. Um, you know, uh, putting in the work every day to maintain that sober cadence has been, it takes work, but it's a very simple concept and it all starts with a commitment. And I found that if, if you, if you commit to something and you, and let's say the goal is to become, I don't know if I'm seven or eight or whatever year sober now. Um, but if you don't really, I would, I wouldn't advise anybody to say, I want to be 10 years down the road and be sober. That's not how how I did it, the way that I did it was to say, I'm going to be sober. What's the first step in that? And really um, the first step in anything is to set a small string of tiny goals. And one is to, when you get uncomfortable to meditate, for example. Um, So I would just peel off and do a 20 or 30 minute meditation. And that's not easy for somebody who's got a very busy mind or is (laughs) always thinking about something or is used to seeking external, you know, pulling a drink for when you feel uncomfortable because every single time it makes you feel better. The only problem is you keep making yourself feel better until you feel worse every single night of the week. Mm -hmm. And, and so practicing that very simple idea, uh, simplicity is the key to happiness and success. That was one of the, the mantras that I choose. Do the thing that you, if you do the thing that you don't necessarily want to do or is easy, then typically the thing that's more difficult that may not seem like you want to do it initially, the the fruits of that are profound. Um, so in those early years, I bet, for example, call your sponsor every day. Question most people would ask is why? What are we going to talk about? Well, just do it. Don't ask the questions. You may not want to do it. It may feel weird. It may feel uncomfortable. Just do it. Practice what you become. That would be the second. What we practice, we become. And I wanted to become somebody down the road, but I had to practice being some something in the present that would reveal that type of fruit down the road. Yeah, powerful and applicable to any time anyone faces a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Simplify, take that first step. So about that time, that you started taking that journey to get sober, it seemed like you also started your running journey. So how did those two things dovetail and, and how did the running journey progress? Sure. So I, um, the, the, the hot dog operation that I was, uh, founding, which was a brick and mortar and 
that town of Lake Charles was proved to be very, very difficult. Um, I was basically managing it, um, owner operator, small operation kind of a system and um, very, very difficult, very stressful. Uh, at that time, as a newly found sober person, you don't, I didn't have the tools and the resources to learn how to deal with the stress at all. I was just kind of like, just running around like a chicken with my head cut off, so to speak. So um, every day or after the lunch rush, I found that, so every day I would go for a run, a one hour run, but it all started with one evening run. I remember sitting, I was doing some meditation. It was a Saturday night. And around that time on Saturday night, everybody was kind of, uh, going out and doing their thing. My friends were all calling me, Mike, come on, just come on out with us. You don't have to drink, do your thing. Uh, just come hang out with us. We miss you. And I kind of felt that viscerally every Saturday night or every Friday night or really any given night, but on the weekends, it was a little bit tougher. Mm -hmm. So this one Saturday night around 10 PM, I was reading a book called, uh, the Tibetan book of living and dying, which is still one of my favorite books of all time. The living section is just absolutely profound and amazing, but I was reading that and I was doing some meditation and decided just to throw on some old shoes and, and go for, go for a run just to kind of get out of my own body, out of my own head and uh, kind of amend on that meditation that I was doing, went for a run. It turned out to be, you know, quite a long run, probably somewhere between four and eight miles. I went around the lake and came back to the bar, you know, around midnight, super slow and just felt alive, just felt so good. And just practiced this one little thing, just stepping out of my way and doing something physical to kind of interrupt the noise. And, and that was just, to me, that was it was amazing. I mean, I, I'm sure that everybody has got their coming into running, which is a simple idea. Everybody comes into it by means of, I want to become more healthy, or I want to try this out, or I want to get out of my own head. So I think we all enter into running the same way. And it's pretty, pretty simple idea. But I ended up using that as a tool after that lunch rush every day, I'd be really stressed out, not knowing what to do, thinking about the problems, trying to come up with solutions. And the best I had at the time was to just take my shirt off, put on some running shoes and go the eight miles around the lake. And uh, I did that pretty religiously. And it, it taught me that not all problems can be solved immediately. Not everything, you know, is uh, basically, yeah, not all problems can be solved immediately. So take ourselves out of the equation and kind of throw it up to the grandeur of the meditation or the run and let it work it out. And I practice that every day at the restaurant most days. So it just became something that was more so a meditation and just a beautiful experience. So it became an outlet for you, but at some point you started to get a little more competitive and, you know, you got pretty, pretty damn fast. So how did that shift for you? Sure. Um, turns out if you're running at a proper, you know, maybe, maybe not proper. I won't, I won't speak in, in right or wrongs. Uh, in fact, you're, you're the coach here. So, <laughs> but I was running slow and I was running, like I imagined myself as Darius from cool runnings, you know, just kind of chilling, <laughs> having a good time. I had reggae on my headphones all the time, soaking up the sun. It was about being in the sun and moving my legs. I think unbeknownst to me, I was running at a very low 
aerobic heart rate eventually and learning how to build some, uh, you know, drawing upon the fatty acids and everything like that. I think the fruits of what came from the running was mostly not running just to gut it out every day. It was more of more so a meditation. So eventually I just became a little bit more keen to the endurance aspects of my body. And, um, and eventually I could just run a long way and it was very enjoyable. So I decided to, uh, a friend of mine had done an Ironman and I grew up kind of watching those old, you know, uh, Ironman VHS tapes that we recorded as a kid and thought it was just this like otherworldly sport. So got into that. I signed up for an Ironman in Texas and, um, and I just got to training, bought a bike the next day after I, after I put the, uh, the race entry in the cart, went and bought a bike and got all the gear, got a gym membership so I could have a pool and just something like a project, uh, find, finding a project to kind of flex that endurance muscle and uh, ended up doing not too poorly in that race. I think I, I was very proud of my performance. Uh, it was like something around 12 hours for that first Ironman and uh, just a very, very I would call it a beautiful, but mostly fun experience. I, mm -hmm. I was laughing my ass off the whole time. Mm -hmm. And it was just because like everybody's out here. There's like three or 4,000 people all going through the pain cave, but with smiles on their faces. This is it. This is perfect. <laughs> so after that, um, I, uh, I wanted to, I had this vision and I, at the, at the peak of my uh, alcohol use, I was in, uh, one of the times was in when I went to school at Berkeley. So I didn't have any reverence for the Boston Marathon when I lived there. And I actually derived a, 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 a fierce amount of guilt about that because I hold the race itself into high reverence these days. And I think it's a special race. So uh, of which I've, I've actually never gotten to race it, but the idea yet, the idea was uh, go for it, Mike, just don't, don't say no, you know, you, you have an endurance uh, aspect to you that you can leverage right now, post the Ironman, you love running, just go get that race. So that's when I went to put an entry into CIM and uh, went and collected a qualifying time at CIM. I'm still waiting to race that because it was canceled due to COVID and everything, but it's, it's a very special story to me because it all started with a vision that I had a debt to myself to repay. Um, if that makes any sense, there was a, there was a, it's like when you, when something special that's right in front of your eyes, when I could have walked out of my front door to watch the Boston marathon, I didn't even hold it to high reverence because I was so just out of my mind hmm. it, it, that those are things that, you know, there, I believe that there are moments in life where that, that was the one to me. It was like, that's, that's the race that I need to go yeah. get. You know. Owe it to yourself to pay it proper respect. That's right. And there's no better way than to run it. That's for sure. That's right. Even though there are certainly other ways. So let's go back to the hot dog thing for a second. <laughs> Why hot dogs? Well, <laughs> what inspired this idea? Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll start by saying that I lived both in Chicago and New Orleans. Chicago, there was this really kick-ass place called Hot Dugs. Doug Son uh, is not, I don't believe he's doing business anymore, uh, but he ran a kind of a, he was like this song and dance man hot dog guy. And it was awesome. He had served like 
rattlesnake and pheasant and boar and like all these crazy sausages. And I went there when I was working in Chicago. And then when I moved to New Orleans to work for a band, I had uh, was pushing gelato and pulling espresso at um, a restaurant called Sucre and uh, Sucre and and um, it was uh, th these these guys were talking about starting a restaurant. So um, and I and I'm chiming in because I'm serving their espressos every day, and I was like. Hmm. What are you guys talking about? They're like, we're starting a restaurant. I go like, hot dogs. They're like, yeah, you're hired. So I went and got into the mix and helped build uh, the first iteration in a shack on Ferret Street that's now called Dat Dog, and they're a pretty pretty big hot dog empire. So I learned a lot at the age of 22 by helping start the operations in that business and getting my you know learning a little bit about the restaurant industry and later down the road i use that simply as a tool that those resources that i learned to start my own uh why hot dogs because i love the, the aspect of a novelty life my favorite songwriter is john hartford he wrote the song that glenn campbell made famous gentle on my mind he was a riverboat captain he was a you know a banjo player he could play anything as long as it had a string or something to make some noise and i love the aspect of maybe i could be this hot dog guy that lived this novelty life that was against the status quo against the grain but on my own terms and uh maybe it's a way to leave my mark in the world and whereas i believe that it was a perfect experience it's just the restaurant industry itself proved to be a little bit counter to the ways that I'd like to kind of utilize my time. I thought that I could provide more value in a sport or, or in a realm or a industry that I was more passionate about. So what was your thing? What was, what's this hot dog place called? And what was, yeah. what was the thing? What was the stick? Yeah, sure. It was called Botsky's. My, uh, it is called Botsky's. My grandmother used to call her grandchildren that as we were kids, Little her little Botsky's. And we didn't <laughs> know what it meant. It was kind of a goofy name. And I thought, but it was a serious name to have, you know, if you're, you're a little Botsky, you're your grandmother's, <laughs> you know, grandchild. So it was a goofy name, serious idea. And I served and learned how to make really, really fine artisan sausage. I'm, I got anything from local rabbit to, again, pulling on that uh, methodology of hot dogs in Chicago. I got boar and pheasant and buffalo and, and all this crazy game and was making these really awesome uh, creations that were disguised as hot dogs. And I'd be like a $15 hot dog. And so I love the idea of a paradox street food and fine dining, um, things like that. So I did learn the craft of sausage making. I learned the craft of building an environment, uh, building a brand and uh, going, going. That's why I say the restaurant industry can teach you a lot if you build it from the ground up. Where did you go from there? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> after, um, after I decided to make a little bit of a change in my life from the restaurant industry, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that I was in love with sports and I was in love with my health and my sobriety. Um, I had actually through sobriety, I'd built, I was practicing building self-esteem, self-esteem coming from the self, of course, uh, has to be learned. It has to be generated. We have to put ourselves through the gauntlet to raise that bar. So one of the things that was always that made me not a successful musician was I never thought my songs were good enough. So again, doing the thing that you don't want to do probably has some fruits to it. I began playing music, even if I don't didn't want to in Lake Charles. 
and I began practicing playing cover music and my own songs and stuff like that. And because it made me uncomfortable. And uh, eventually I found that I was very at home on stage and I could, I developed a, a proper singing voice, the microphone, and I became an acoustic rock and roll lounge singer for the better <laughs> part of, you know, a year or two probably played. And I played every single day. Some hmm. Sundays I would take off and I took about a month off to go to India, but I, I shit you not. It was, it was building a muscle memory of doing the things that made me uncomfortable became the thing that I fell in love with. So I was, uh, going into the casinos in Lake Charles and saying, I'd play for free for a couple nights. And if you'll have me, I'll take, you know, a couple hundred bucks to play every Thursday or something like that, or the restaurants or, so I had a Monday open night gig, uh, that I hosted. And then on Tuesdays, I played at the farmer's market. On Wednesdays, I played at a restaurant called Restaurant Cala. On Thursdays, I traveled to Beaumont to play one of the various venues that I made myself at home there. And on the Friday and Saturday, I gave myself prerogative to play either a bar or a fun venue that was more so kind of rowdy and having fun with it. And then on Sundays, I would take the occasional brunch gig, but I played over 300 shows probably the first year and on the second year probably more so like 320 or something like that so it was it was fun uh so i did that for to build that self-esteem after that and at what point did you move to austin again right on so <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird little story that's all kind of tied into it to everything but uh there was a moment where on those runs, I fell in love with, uh, so the first pair of, let's talk some running shoes because the, <laughs> what happened was it was the commodities themselves. It was the running shoes that, and, and the marketing behind some specific ones that made me fall in love with footwear. So the, before I was running in, I got my, I got my hands on a pair of Newton fates. <laughs> so uh and this was i forget what year it was it was a long time ago probably when i was 27 maybe a year after i started running and i got a pair of newton fates and and i they were you know the danny abshire methodology of you know midfoot to forefoot striking high cadence and everything i was adopting these and i could really feel a visceral you know performance upgrade in the way that i was running now the marketing from them really helped me out um, to kind of take a look at my stride, the mechanics, uh, the dynamic of my stride and kind of get into the minutia of what the body's actually doing. Uh, I then graduated into the Adidas Takumi Sin lime green. And what I found is that the more that I felt the road, the more I fell in love with running and, and this idea that external forces don't really help us with internal problems because I became literally a better runner by running in less of the shoe. And, um, you know, my shin splints went away. I had shin splints back across country and it was always a problem. I actually had a hairline fracture in high school. I was just had probably had shitty form. So, uh, <laughs> eventually I ended up kind of going down this Takumi Sin route and just falling in love with looking into the construction of a shoe as applied to being a natural extension of ourselves. So um, when 
I made the change, it was, if you ask some, uh, it, I'll put it like this. Starting a shoe company when you don't have any business doing it seems like probably the biggest goal you can do. And I was only interested in the biggest, weirdest goals. And I was in love with footwear and I was in love with running. So I didn't have a choice. I was sitting on a couch in Lake Charles at the time um, talking to a friend and I said, I'm going to do it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm, I'm going to start a shoe company. It's going to be awesome. I went and got my mom's sewing machine and I had to, I was living with my grandfather at the time, taking care of him. And uh, he was, um, you know, it was a really, that was another really beautiful experience on the last, the, the back end of my Lake Charles experience, but um, kind of understanding shoe construction, making casts of my foot, understanding last and details and how the industry works and uh, did enough homework to where I realized I'm going to, I'm going to flip the switch. I'm going to put everything that I got from the restaurant and everything I got from the music. And I'm going to go all in. I'm going to bet the farm on an idea that I believe in. And the first decision I ever made was I can't do it here. Not because Lake Charles isn't good enough or anything like that, but because the opportunity is in Austin, Texas, because my favorite running trail was town Lake trail. And I needed to be somewhere where I felt like I could learn more about myself and running and get involved with a community that actually really, really takes it seriously. So the first move was to come to Austin and the first place the two days after I arrived to town, I walked across the street. I was living with my brother at the time, walked across the street to Rogue Running and I filled out an application and I got a job there about a week after I moved to Austin and started January 1st, I believe, 2018 at Rogue <laughs> Running to do market research for this new company that I was going to start. <laughs> Okay, we'll pause there and get back to talking to Michael about Atreyu running in just a minute. I wanted to give a quick shout out to my partner, Carev. They are a daily vitamin and supplement company where you can get those daily packs of everything you need to stay healthy in this new year. Personally, I use it for my daily vitamin D supplementation and I've added other things to that at the suggestion of Carev because you can go to their website takecareof.com. You can take the online quiz. They will give you suggestions based on your goals and help you find those daily supplements that you need in addition to anything else you might already want or be taking. After you take the quiz, they'll lay out options for you, give you all the information, including what's included in their quality clean ingredients. They're very transparent about that. They're also very transparent about their research on everything they su they suggest so you can see exactly what the science says about anything you might put in those daily packs. So then once you decide on a daily pack, they'll send it to you so you can get these individual daily packs so you know, you know exactly what to take without having to remember like I would used to forget prior to working with care of. It's about then, of course, taking those daily vitamins and supplements to feel good as we enter this new year. Those small victories, those little steps, just like those daily runs so that you can be strong and healthy in 2021. If you'd like to take advantage of this, go to TakeCareOf.com. You can use the code ROGUE50. That's R-O-G-U-E-5-0, all lowercase. 
Use their code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. Again, go to takecareof.com. Use code ROGUE50. Take the online quiz. Find out what is going to work for you. Build those daily packs and then start using them in your journey here and your path in the new year. It works for me and I am certain that it will work for you too. So now let's get back to my conversation with Michael. I remember when you started uh, that with us and at the time we had sold, we had just sold our store to Jackrabbit. So still called Rogue Running still is today. And we're, we're partners there obviously as mm-hmm. with the training business. But I remember when you started and, you know, always kind of interacting with you. <laughs> I, no, I don't think that your intentions were fully transparent at the time, but it was clear that you were really curious about running shoes and figuring everything out. And so we would have fun conversations about that because I think we found that we had pretty similar ideas about right what, on. What, make, what makes a good shoe. Yeah. I, I remember reading your, um, your article, um, that, uh, and being pretty inspiring. What was the name of that article, Chris? It's called the myth of overpronation. The myth of overpronation. <laughs> yeah. The reason I took the job there was because that article existed. It aligned <laughs> with my methodology and kind of like my, my early theories. And, uh, and I just, I just knew it. I was like, this is the place this is where I'm going to learn. And, uh, that, that was a fun, fun experience for me. Yeah. I, I didn't really tell many people what I was doing for a few months yeah. because plainly put i was learning you know i was just trying to collect everything i could yeah and there's no better place to learn about shoes than on a shoe floor that's right interacting with customers that's for sure (laughs) so gosh there's so many things since then i mean it feels simultaneously (laughs) it feels like simultaneously forever since that time but also like it was just yesterday at the same time and we're really only talking about three years ago and to see how far you've come since then is just absolutely amazing. But I want to start by talking about your philosophy on footwear as it started to shape in those early days, working on the shoe floor and even what you had kind of coming in. Anyway, we've, we've tipped our hats a little bit by talking about that article that I wrote, but as you were building your perspective on footwear, what were the elements of it? Roger that. So I, I kind of, the way that I see things is you can be either a scientist or a mathematician. Uh, mathematicians uh, generally operate within solving proofs, right? And scientists use the scientific method. I prefer to see things through the lens of the scientific method, which is to disqualify things that don't necessarily equate to being true as applied to the theory. So, um, or the hypothesis. So the easiest thing that I could do without having a bona fide knowledge of truth was to quantify things that weren't necessarily seeming to be true. And um, so that was my, my, my first start in looking at a shoe wall, for example. What are the things that didn't need to be there? And then um, a good old fashioned Google search and research and reading all the research studies that I could get my hands on, um, there seemed to be an incredible correlation between what I had gone through, experienced, and what was actually scientifically kind of, you know, revealed through data. Um, For example, there was a military study done that 
put 3,000 um, military personnel, men and women, in a couple different groups based on one group being based on arch size and one group based on a control, like no arch size, putting shoes in, um, specifying support shoes to that that one group and then just giving shoes mid cushion neutrals to the other group and there was there, a, there's a lot of these studies out there that kind of suggest that the correlation between there, there's no the data seems to be the same either way I, I don't know how to put that eloquently other than the fact that it some of the features the external features also stability is from what I understand from the consumer standpoint is pretty much misunderstood. If somebody wants a stable shoe, what does that actually mean? Does that mean arch support? Does that mean a wide base? What, like, there's so many different ways to qualify these things. So I just tried to split the difference on everything um, and came up with the good old fashioned mid cushion neutral running shoe that you have a di nice decent feel of the road helps the body and the mind connect themselves uh, the mind connects to the foot and you have this nice you know organic transaction between what's actually going on and what you're putting into it and what you're getting out that less is more is very advantageous but we're running on man-made surfaces so you pair that with the born to run with your article with everything that was going on in this you know new renaissance of time uh that you i'm getting into a little bit of a, a can of worms here because i don't want to start talking about research studies per se but i did believe firmly that before we go fix problems that we aren't 100 sure about we need to get an objective clear picture of what's going on and uh, and I think that the mid cushion neutral running shoe is a great place to start, as opposed to diagnosing different elements of other things to come into the mix, because we could miss something that we have the solutions to inside of ourselves and our stride and our gait and our training and our recovery, all of that good stuff. So, um, yeah, I I just wanted to build something from the ground up uh, as a template and then add on where I needed to add on and tangibly put into practice the original shoe and the shoe today doesn't really even have a hill counter. And um, I never found that to be necessary. It's not like we're running on crazy terrain. Um, I found that the lightweight aspect raised the cadence um, anywhere between four BPM and more in some cases. So a higher cadence, uh, faster turnover, lighter on the foot, feel of the road. These, um, again, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir on this, <laughs> but it's, there was just so much to be learned from my own body that I wanted to build a shoe that reflected that. I couldn't really find one on the market that I fell in love with to be totally honest. <laughs> well, and, and to be honest with that, uh, from my standpoint as well, as someone who has, has, in my running journey, gravitated towards shoes like you're describing, it's harder and harder to find them, <laughs> really. Mm -hmm. You know, it was easier 10 years ago, to be quite honest, and now it's really hard. And and you're talking about a simple concept, but as you said earlier, simple doesn't necessarily mean easy, <laughs> especially if you're a hot dog guy who's working on a shoe floor, who has to figure out how to get a shoe constructed in Asia which mm -hmm. is pretty much the only place you can do it. Right. So how in the world did you learn how to make a shoe? 
proximity is a beautiful thing. So if you put yourself on a shoe floor where reps and runners and everybody comes in every day and you're somebody like me who likes to ask a lot of questions, then eventually you get hooked up maybe with a lead. And this lead in my case was uh, some fellas that, um, you know, I, I still very much uh, enjoy today and we work together today, um, liaison between uh, a startup manufacturer like a Treyu and a supplier in Asia, in our case, China. So I was able to hook up with a prototyping firm and also was able to work with an industrial designer on the first iteration of the midsole that we had this, I had what was called a tech pack for the midsole and refinement of the upper that I kind of, we tweaked and everything after that. And, and so by means of meeting people that knew people <laughs> that I just took a lot of phone calls. It really happened pretty quick uh, where eventually I was, uh, I was talking to a prototyping agency and, and then I was sending over these rough drafts of these tech packs and technical drawings of midsoles and uppers. And they said, all right, for a small fee, you know, we can get this thing made up and got it made up. And it was just crazy. It, like you said, it, it seems a little bit of a short period of time, but when you pack a punch uh, you, that with the right folks and the right communication, I do believe that anything can kind of come together quickly if the intent's right. So um, yeah, it's how do you do it? I, I don't necessarily have a template on that. I know that you need to find somebody that knows some connections in Asia and you need to have some great technical drawings and the price needs to be right. Um, <laughs> other than that, it's just kind of a whirlwind of what happens thereafter. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure a lot of trial and error and yeah. maybe stubbing your toe here and there as you work through it. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's talk about there's two other things two things I want to talk about before we kind of talk about the modern version of a tray you running, but sure. one, I want to talk about the name mm -hmm. tray you running. I'm fond of the name of tray you because I was a massive fan of the never ending story uh, as a, as a kid and really identified in a weird way with that character, a tray mm -hmm. you. And so when you told me the name and I know you iterated on a few different things, I was really excited about it because I thought that was such a cool name, but tell us your journey to get to that name. Right on. So uh, in the beginning, it was called mint as in mint fresh. Like I had this idea that they would all be vacuum packed when you opened them because it was going to be a direct to consumer model. Right. So we're trying to cut out all the costs, all this crazy stuff, all the fluff on the shoes and the construction on the business model and the supply chain, everything. So I wanted the bags to open in there to be, uh, emit a mentholated smell, right? So fresh shoes, here they are. And um, <laughs> and so we didn't get that name from the U.S. Trademark Office. It was pretty embarrassing. We actually did six months worth of PR and everything like that. I call it PR, but building an Instagram around mint running and doing like a vlog behind it. And then I had to, you know, hang my head a little bit and be like, all right, so we didn't get the registered trademark. Let's, let's move on. So there was a period of time, went to book people, bought a dictionary, looked through the whole thing, highlighted a <laughs> bunch of words and just couldn't find anything that mattered. Nothing, that, nothing that really stuck. Uh, because whereas I am a very calculated kind of thinker and I want things to be right. I also derive most of those calculations by means of an initial gut feeling, right? Like to shoot from the hip. And um, 
So I don't like to push any creative decision. It has to come to me. So I was in Nice, France, uh, was lucky enough to qualify for the world championships, uh, 70.3 in the Ironman. And um, I was reading a book called The Warrior Code that my brother Gabriel gave me. And, um, and I just, I was thinking about these tactile warrior style words and Atreyu just literally came almost like a, call it a vision or something. I was putting syllables together, Atari, this, 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 and Atreyu came, I was like, shit, man. Of course, one of the first thoughts I had was like you, like I was a badass protagonist in a really kick ass. <laughs> so, um, but then I started looking it up and I started doing the detail work, which is going into the test search and the US trademark didn't have anything on it. And I was like, oh, this is great. So when, uh, after some due diligence and a great gut feeling that sometimes along the journey, you just got to shoot from the hip and you know something feels right and when the word came to me, not only did it sound right and feel right, it looked right in my head. Like I could build the mark in my head. And I knew what the typeface needed to look like and I could see it on the shoes and I could see it building into this 10 years down the road style idea. Like again, becoming sober is not something you do. It's like you do it now. Like you, you, it's take the steps towards it. But I could see this vision of Atreyu being a very, very dominant name, like a very fierce name and that's once it entered into my mind I talked to my brother about it he was like I love it I was like all right it passes our gut test and it also passes what I think to be is the trademark test and I'm very happy we landed on that name it's <laughs> very beautiful to kind of have that set in stone what does it mean to you yeah so it means um I I see it as I see it as the personification, or not the personification, the actual, the, the word behind the, the theory that the battle lies within. And this kind of our tagline, um, I wanted, whereas it is kind of a made up feeling word, what it means is to look inward. What it means is to seek, you know, don't seek external solutions to internal problems. So it encompasses the values of the company. And I, it's a made up word to a made up, you know, set of values that we very much believe in. So it means to me, the battle lies within and not everything is easy, you know, great stuff comes through hard work. So I'm hoping that it just becomes synonymous with our values and our vision. That's cool. I mean, interestingly, I mean, to me, one of the morals of that movie is that mm. the solution is inside you already. You already know my name. And mm -hmm. so I think that dovetails nicely for those that are fans of that movie. I know I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to link it too closely, but I do think there's a lot of interesting parallels there. Agreed completely. In fact, my brother, he had more of the idea that you had after the fact, uh, whereas mine was, I'm a little bit younger. I'm, nine years younger than my brother <laughs> yeah. and that movie was on it was it was in my i remember watching it as a kid but it didn't mean as much to me as it meant to my brother and he was like mike that's pretty it's pretty cool that you know the name itself being a powerful name evokes some type of value set and i think that's why it spoke to me but it, i think it also is is a nice familiar way to jump into that type of study between what a name can do and what a yeah. brand can do or what a value set can do. 
And you mentioned briefly this idea of changing the paradigm really by going direct to consumer with footwear, which not really, not really anybody has done to this point, the way you're doing it. So talk about the reasonings behind that. Sure. So one of the, you know, what I learned is that, and it's not right or wrong. It's just a matter of fact, a shoe is produced. It's then, you know, it's got, an FOB price, and then a landed cost, and then a wholesale cost, and then a this cost, and then a little bit of a markup. So then it can become then on sale. Again, if you really, really align a personal, my personal set of values to like how you would want to build a business around those, I really, cost is something that, um, so, the first thing that most customers would ask when they walk into a run store is um, how long do these shoes last or how long, how much, what's in, basically what's my ROI on this shoe? I just didn't like answering that question. Um, I, I, I tend to gravitate towards what are they intended for? How long do the materials like actually last? Like what is a midsole, all this stuff. So uh, with the direct to consumer model, um, bar none, what I've illuminated and uh, what we've been testing here is that you can provide some really great streamlined um, supply chain directly from the manufacturer to the warehouse to the consumer. And lean and mean, man, this company is fierce about, wait, we have four people sitting in this office right now doing wild things. And and I think that it's because we don't have so many conf- complexity kills momentum. That's one of the things we kind of stand by. A complex pricing model kills momentum. You have so many different channels and all this crazy stuff going on. So what's the simplest way to deliver a great, honest product out into the market on consumers? This was the best of what I had. And we're testing this ongoing. We're students of the industry. We're damn good students. And I think that when you don't have two different price breaks, like a wholesale and and then a retail or a markup and all that stuff, you can really get honest about the value that a company offers. And again, we're we're all about that transparency, all about that upfront, candid, honesty approach that I took all that first year. Now we're gravitating into more about honoring simplicity. Our fierce value is honoring simplicity. The most simple thing is one price. What's the right price? What's the margin that we can do business on? How do we feel like our customers will want to use our products and grow? And that's where we landed on that direct to consumer. And it's it's been hard pressed to find an alternative to that, to be totally honest with you. But uh it's, it's not a wild idea that a raw cost of goods to a particular commodity can be charged a certain price if the organization behind it is really kind of lean and mean, yeah. uh, that makes any sense. And it's different. I mean, in many ways, it's, it's why, you know, Southwest or Frontier can compete in a way that's different from Delta and United because mm-hmm. they were constructed differently. The the bones are different and therefore the pricing is different. And in y'all's case, you know, for $55, a shoe or a pair of shoes, you can get a subscription. And then for $75, you can do a single purchase in a world now where you're paying $130 to $150 
pretty much minimum for a similar quality shoe. I mean, that's a pretty unbelievable value proposition, not to mention the fact that now I don't have to think about when my shoes are going to be replaced. I just get a new pair on my doorstep, which adds a convenience element that is worth something too. And it really tips the balance to me of that, that, that value equation. So it's really cool. And to me, it's, it's disruption in the industry potentially that we haven't seen since, you know, really things started turning upside down due to the born to run situation and how that kind of turned material development in a, in a unique way. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, really cool stuff. So just kudos, first of all, thank you on what you built. You guys started delivering shoes last summer, I believe. Correct. In the middle of a global yeah. pandemic. Yeah. How was that? That was one of the, well, January was the scariest month I've ever kind of imagined because in January, everything started with the pandemic was in China and production had thusly mm. stopped. And, and so, you know, that, that was like, oh my goodness, I've done like, what's going to happen. And then the pandemic shifted into the U S and, and it's been, it's been just nothing short of, uh, I don't have a word to even say. I mean, it's just a tragedy. So um, I, I think that, so we took, we took our first sales on February 1st, 2020 uh, that for no other reason that we were, we had to pre-sell some shoes and um, because we had ordered them and we were, didn't have any money and, you know, and, and that's just a way to maybe build some cash flow, to build some momentum. Then the shoes got in a few months later because after the Chinese New Year, production was actually back on. And a lot of a lot of a lot of folks might think that, you know, overseas production is like inefficient and they don't worry about quality, but rest assured that I mean, there's some incredible quality that comes out of these production facilities and and especially their timelines where once they kind of recalibrated after the Chinese new year, they had, um, there was a big quarantine in China. So I was very, I think we were very lucky to have production on schedule. Um, so I was, I can't say enough about that. I, I mean, I'm very grateful that we got to stick to those timelines and, um, whereas, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my words wisely because I don't want to seem high and mighty about the fact that we're going direct to consumer and it just came from China to us. But again, the simplicity, the fruits of that were that we, we could avoid a lot of the perils that a lot of folks, you know, are dealing with even to this day. Um, and because we're very grateful, man. It's, it, I, all of our updates to our, 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 you know, the, the athletes that pre-purchased the shoes, all we were saying was productions on schedule, productions on schedule. Like we'll let you know if anything <laughs> happens, we'll be upfront about this. And I'm just feeling very lucky and grateful that it was on it. We have great communication with our suppliers and, um, and we shipped everything out. Uh, I don't know. It's, um, I do think that the simplicity that, uh, 
that I keep referring back to aids us in cutting through a lot of some of the perils that are the challenges that are being uh, presented these days. And uh, it actually marries up with the pre-coronavirus uh, um, era now at this point um, that the industry has been due for a change. Uh, one of my early theories was that, you know, retail is backstock and all of this stuff is going to happen whether, you know, folks like it or not. That's just the way. I mean, there's there's big, big organizations out there going direct to consumer. It doesn't mean you don't get to touch the product in person. It doesn't mean you have to do something a certain way, but I do believe that uh, our business model works in line with uh, a, a really, it mitigates a lot of the perils. Um, again, I, I guess that's all I'll say about yeah. that. Is that. I'm just really grateful that, that, that we've landed on this instead of a complex model. Yeah. And and you know the beauty of being small and lean in me is also you can evolve quickly. You know I got right. I got one of the original demo pairs of shoes to test mm -hmm. out, and I remember giving you a few notes on those, including the sizing was just a little bit off, and you were able to make those changes right away and get them into the first round of production. Mm -hmm. So I would assume that's another nice part of it is that you can take consumer feedback and pretty quickly roll it in. It's amazing. I remember when you're, I believe you're a size, uh, well, I, I won't display <laughs> that. I mean, but you were half size, they were half size small. We, we actually, we, we shifted all the sizes because with your feedback at that time, we'd probably put together below 50 pairs, probably around 10 to 20 pairs of test shoes. Right. And got all that feedback and they were all fitting a little bit aggressive. And I just kind of want to be a true to size company. And we got to shift that. Uh, the whole size run up and you don't have to go through any red tape or any departments or anything like that. It's like, well, who do we talk to? I don't know. One of the four guys sitting in the office right now, like that's <laughs> right. y'all want to make the size fit right. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's write an email and, and go for it. It's just like, you don't have to get that approved right. you know, by a dozen different departments. So I do think that lean and mean is, is the recipe, man. Yeah. And, and here's the deal. So my measurement for a shoe and I've been struggling as I mentioned, to find my current shoes because I've had a few recently either change in a way that I didn't like, which is typical of the industry sometimes, mm -hmm. and or that were discontinued because of, you know, the sh a shift away from a certain style of shoe. And so I'd been struggling with finding a replacement for my tried and true options and got your shoe. And to me, the measurement of wearing a shoe when I go try it is when I get back, if I have to think about how it was, then that's a good sign. If I actually have to think, man, how was that run in that shoe? Oh, I didn't notice anything. It felt natural. It was like a glove on my foot and I didn't have anything bothering me to the point where I wasn't focused on the shoe at all. I was focused on just enjoying the run. Mm -hmm. That's the measure of a good shoe. And I can tell you the first time that I ran in your shoe, that's how I felt other than the slight sizing tweak, which you guys fixed right away. And I probably have now over 300 miles on that first demo pair, maybe a little bit more at this point. And they've been great for me. Lightweight, smooth, neutral, really simple construction. And it just disappears when you wear it. And so now I am proudly a paying subscriber. Oh, it's an honor. Just, just got my first uh, paid 
pair uh, this month, and I've got the black colorway, which is super smooth and sleek. And by the way, I love what you're doing with the design elements and the colorways. But you know, to me, I'm a believer as a small business owner myself that if you love something, you got to support it. And so, you know, I wouldn't let you give me a free pair. Um, so I want to, I want to be a subscriber myself just to support what you guys are doing, but highly recommend it. You can check it out at atreyurunning.com if you want to get subscribed yourself. You guys also have something unique you're doing with returns and what to do with the shoes when people are done. So talk about that for a second. Sure thing. First of all, I'll say um, thank you so much, Chris. I, I'm no bullshit aside. It's 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 the reason that the most surreal thing are the is is when I get stories like this. I I really appreciate you going beyond that trial pair um it's like pretty cool it's a pretty <laughs> cool story so i just wanted to say that yeah before for sure next point but uh so one of the things that um we again we're students of our own business and we believe that being a student of your own business and always growing is is the only way to do it if you're not growing you're dying and uh the what Whereas if you want to sum up our return program, our, it all lies under one huge category, which is waste, overproduction, and trying to figure out how to mitigate the, what is to be um, the eco-contribution of something like footwear, which traditionally is not the greatest thing for the environment. So uh, it's actually in a, in a tiered basis. The most important thing I, I see about our, our return program is actually paradoxically in the very beginning. Building a subscriber base or collecting data or being lean and mean is also about over wasteful production. And as a company, we can know what we need to order. We sell out a lot, but we also don't overproduce. And I think that's very healthy for the environment. And uh, I think if, if a lot of you know, if this methodology was adopted across the board, then we could probably do some great stuff in the world while using these materials that are not biodegradable because they're just not performance rated yet. When they are, we'll use them. So full circle into the return program, we are, we are working with, uh, we'll, we'll accept the shoes back and um, the shoes can be in various conditions and either they need to be broken down taken apart, recycled, sent back to a production facility. We have folks to do that now. And then we also have, if they still have life in them, we also can repurpose them, donate them to the same group that helps repurpose them to either stateside domestic you know, use or sending them off to you know, other countries that don't even have footwear. There's so many shoes produced each year. It's like over 20 billion or something crazy. If you Google the number, it says 20 billion, but I heard that it was even much more than that. And then there's not even that many people on the planet earth and not everybody has shoes, does not equate, doesn't make sense. So as we're learning about the business, we're trying these new things to make sure that the shoes just don't be thrown away. Um, when we have the opportunity to provide that type of value, we'll accept the shoes back. Uh, currently we're accepting the shoes back and we send them to our partner, they repurpose them. So it's our recycling program. And uh, we'll keep doing that as, as long as it makes sense. So I'm, I'm really proud about that. We've probably, 
a lot of customers, and again, it's an option. It's not, you don't have to do it. A lot of customers like to use their old shoes as lawn mowing shoes traditionally and stuff like that, yard work shoes. And we're not saying you have to send them back, but we have an option for you to do that if you want to take that. Yeah, love it. The other big news is you guys recently signed Alexi Pappas to right. the team as a, an official sponsored athlete. Right on. That's a big deal. And right she's a big name, form, uh, well, not former, but Olympian who has competed for her, her home country of Greece, but lives here in the U.S. and trains here in the U.S. What, what was that like and what do you think that signing means for you guys? Right on. So um, earlier this year, um, as uh, local athlete Rory Tunningly was racing in the Houston Chevron Marathon, um, that was back in January. Uh, Alexi was also racing that race. And so uh, so I met the fellas over at, um, you know, Howie Management and um, and we that was the, f that was the first time that, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big, I've always been a big fan of Alexi. She's a Renaissance gal. She's got a great personality and she's super interesting. Right. And beyond the runner persona. So filmmaker. Uh, yeah. 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 And it's just, uh, it's a really cool thing to see just her kind of do what she's doing. She's got a book coming out. Um, it's awesome. And, uh, She's got like movies that she self-produced with her husband and it's just really rad. So um, when a couple people say, hey, by the way, you know, you need to look at this athlete and it's like, all right, cool. So make some acquaintances. I, I agree. Well, this is before we even made any sales though. So it's like, I don't know if we should put the car before the horse. Like, I don't know what's going on. We literally don't even know if people like the shoes yet. So we had an opportunity to, you know, go down this road for the past year and put shoes on her feet and she loved them and uh, shared some amazing correspondence. And I just believe that when you partner um, with athletes that they, they need to be a direct extension of the values of the brand. Um, not so much stats and facts and stuff like that, but more so do they represent the highest level values? And Alexi stands for mental health and she stands for, you know, she's an entrepreneur. She's a filmmaker. She's a, she's a writer. She, uh, just everything that, that we're not just runners. You're not just a runner. I'm not just a runner. We're multidimensional. So when we, when we illuminate these types of, um, marry the athlete and, and like ideas of like athletes and brands together, I, I do believe that we have a, have a duty to align our value system. So I couldn't be more proud to partner with her and align our value system together and move forward. But um, yeah, she's amazing. It's been a really cool journey. Uh, we're going to learn how to, we're a different company. Um, and we'll, you can probably expect to see us, you know, do different campaigns with athletes than, you know, a lot of other companies would. So we're, we're going to, we have a lot of cool things ahead of 21 with, uh, with her and also some things that we're going to do as an organization as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. She's scrappy too. And I think you're scrappy. Trey is a scrappy yeah. little company. And so that certainly aligns as we wrap. I just wanted to also talk about and recognize the fact that, you know, it's about more than the shoes. And we've alluded to that at various points of this discussion. One of the things I like about what you've done with your website, what you guys are doing with your email communication is you're also talking about and building an ethos 
within your customer or trying to attract maybe a customer who has a certain ethos. So talk about that part of it. And if you're speaking to the consumer, then directly through this podcast, what do you want them to know about the ethos that you're trying to build and or that might make someone attracted to being a customer of a trade you? Right on. So what we try and do with every overt piece of information that we offer is to um, showcase what we stand for. We honor simplicity. We, it's the, it's all the themes we've been talking about. Um, look within that. I do believe that with work comes output and we have the ability to decide who we want to become as human beings. And, um, the customer that I think is naturally gravitating towards our message are those looking to put in some great work. Um, they're not, they're not folks just looking for a quick fix. Running is difficult. It's a high impact sport. And we're looking to not just be, uh, we're looking to educate on the fact that running is recovery. Running is a great coach. It's a great training plan. It's a great lifestyle, everything in balance. So Naturally, when you look at something that would fall traditionally under like a marketing, um, like a marketing arm of a company, uh, we're talking kind of sterilely about the top end kind of funnel. Like, how? Who, what kind of people do you want to come in and join the club? And what we're saying is, you know, if you're interested in putting in the work and you're interested in following along with a company that wants to. Uh, not saying other companies don't do it. I'm just saying that we really pride ourselves in being able to communicate everything from the business aspects to the construction aspects, to the performance aspects of the footwear and the organizational structure, all that good stuff is that you can find that within a Treyu. Um, we're looking for people with that warrior spirit. I mean, as opposed to people looking for a quick fix, we want to grow with them and we want to grow uh, as a company and we want our athletes to grow as people and athletes bar none. And that's a, that's a much narrower net that a lot of folks would go cast. They go throw thousands and thousands of dollars on, you know, just, you know, dry noodle thrown against the wall, trying to pick up a, a warm audience or something. We're not, we're not about that. We're very much, you know, trying to be as deliberate as possible. We want, we're a performance based company. We want to build the best shoes we want to build the best type of business to deliver those shoes to the consumer and i think that that's our value proposition whereas it's subtle it is a smaller sample of what would be considered a top-end marketing kind of like funnel into something but it's um honestly i think that we can do a, a damn good job in it in a world full of distractions and overposting and noise and all this crazy stuff going on. I just want us to be a part of the new movement of less is more or to follow maybe a little bit of, you know, the Dieter Rams industrial design kind of idea, which is, you know, uh, less is better. <laughs> I love it, man. Really fascinating to talk to you. I'm so proud to be a part, a small part of the story and right, it's been awesome watching you do what you've done to create this company because it's really, really, really impressive. The shoes are great. And so we're calling all warriors. Go check it out at trendyrunning.com. And thanks so much, Michael, for taking the time. Thank you, Chris. It's an honor and a privilege to, you know, come full circle with you on this conversation. It means the world to me, man.
There you go. Michael Kragic, everyone from Atreyu Running. You can go check them out at atreyurunning.com. Again, highly recommend the shoes. They're great, simple, smooth, and of course, they come at the right price. I hope you found that conversation inspiring in one way or another, whether it be for life or or for your running. I think Michael has a powerful story, not only overcoming the, the things he's been able to overcome, but also by building this brand from scratch in a way that is really cool in my opinion. So thanks to him for joining. Thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.